This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. Lord God, we, we need you. We need you in every single way. Ultimately, we need you to stand before you. We are not worthy in and of ourselves but we rely on your grace and your mercy. And we thank you that you have bestowed this upon us and ultimately because of Jesus. And we see glimpses of this in the Old Testament when you would look down on those that were not your people and you would save them. Well, this is one of those places. Lord, we we know ultimately that we are in exactly the same place as Nineveh and in exactly the same place as Jonah, but for the blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. I know about you, but I am one of those people who is uh, the kind of person that will take a simple task and make it complex. If you don't believe me, ask my wife about the way in which we argue about how to load the dishwasher. I have a particular way that it's done. I want the cutlery all grouped together, the knives together, the forks together, the spoons together, the little spoons together. And then it's really easy to take them out and put them in the drawer. And then when you take them out and you put them in the drawer, you've got certain knives that go together. And you've got the soup spoons that go this way and the, and the other spoons, the dessert spoons that go this way. I am that person. In fact, it's gotten so bad in my house that I've told my wife not to worry about the washing because I want it folded in a particular way. <laughs> it's a nightmare. It definitely makes life a lot more complex in the moment. And I know that I'm not alone. I know that there are a lot of people that that have this same problem where they can take simple tasks and make them complex. Oftentimes, we do that because we're not simply obedient. This is Jonah's problem. Jonah has taken a relatively simple task and he's made it overwhelmingly more complex than it had to be. It was A journey, yes, if he was going to go by camel or by donkey, it was going to take him about a a month to go from where he was in Israel across through to where Nineveh was, about 800 kilometres. But he tried to go the other way because he was determined that he wanted to do things his way. And God was determined that he was going to do things his way. Here's one of the really simple lessons to learn from Jonah. You can't beat God. We get back to Jonah. He's gone. He went on a ship. He went into the belly of a fish. He gets thrown up on the shore. And here he is. And we're back at the exact same place. And in chapter 3, you'll see the same thing in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This time a second time. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so this time, Jonah 3, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. About time, Jonah. Thankfully, 
he did this because he was never going to be able to resist the will of the Lord. Now, we understand why he's so resistant. Ultimately, I don't think we would have been any different because he knows that, that Israel, his beloved country, these covenantal people of God, are also a rebellious people, doing very similar things to, to Nineveh. And Nineveh, Assyria, are the enemy of Israel. We've already looked at how Jonah knows that God is going to spare Nineveh. He's going to spare Assyria. And that ultimately, as a contemporary of Amos, he knows that, that Assyria are going to come down and they're going to crush Israel. And so he is the disobedient prophet because his heart goes out to Israel, but not to Nineveh. What he misses in all of this, though, is that that. Yes, there's a special covenantal relationship that exists between Israel and Yahweh, but all people belong to God. Nineveh is God's creation as well. And so God has a particular mercy in this particular moment. It's a city of great sin. It's a city of great bloodshed. But God looks on it with compassion and ultimately sends Jonah. But this message, we shouldn't miss what the message is. Jonah knows that it's going to be a message of grace. Ultimately, God is going to use his words in order to turn the hearts of Nineveh. But this is not a particularly nice message. The idea is that he's going to go and proclaim a message against Assyria, against Nineveh. This is a message of judgment. That if they do not turn, in fact, there is no words for him, but ultimately he says that God is going to judge them. God is going to destroy them. This is the message. Jonah 4, Jonah began to go into the, going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming it. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In Hebrew, this is five words. That's all he says. If he says any more than that, we don't get that idea. We don't have it recorded for us. Five words. 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his message. But ultimately, it's, it's not the man. It's not the words. It's God. He was just supposed to be simply obedient. And he gets too easily distracted by his own desires, his own will, his own care for his own country. I think the church itself as well has this to admit. The church gets too easily distracted. I don't think that we miss the exact same problem that Jonah had. See, we've been given a very simple command as well. Ultimately, Jesus left us with an instruction in Matthew 28, very famous. He says in verse 18, he says, Then Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
And so Jesus, when he's on earth and he's about to go to his father, he has a very similar message for his church to what is given to Jonah. Go and preach. Go and make disciples. Go to those people of a strange language and a strange tongue. Go to those people that are, that are a little bit far away and go to your own people and go and proclaim this message. But so often, the church gets distracted by what are good things, but are not always what we're actually supposed to be doing. Building projects. Writing beautiful songs. Jails, education. All of these things are good. All of these extra ministries are good, as long as they don't become an actual distraction from what it is that is our primary ministry. It wasn't necessarily a bad thing that Jonah had a heart for his own people, that he cared that one day, not too far in the future, that, that ultimately this country, Assyria, was going to come and crush Israel. It wasn't bad that he cared about that. What was bad is that he got distracted and that he didn't just simply obey God wants obedience from his people. And ultimately for us, just like Jonah, what God does with that is up to him. It's not up to us. We don't actually get to pick or choose as to what God will do and the power that he will give, those, the people that he will save. We don't get to do that. We just have to go and be obedient, trusting that ultimately Jesus himself is the one to whom all authority belongs. And this wasn't just a command for the early church. This is a command for today. For after all, we are told in 20 that, that they were to teach and to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. This is one of the commands. In fact, this great commission is one of the primary commands for the church. And so while other things are good, while we can do good things, we shouldn't let ourselves be distracted. But I think it's so impressive that God, even in this day, shows his heart for the people that were not his. It's another sign that, that we're not in plan B, we're not in plan C. It's not like God, when, when things started to go wrong, that God was shocked by that. God has always had a heart for the world, to see the world saved, to see people brought in. That's always been his heart. And throughout the Old Testament, he uses Israel to show little glimpses of what this was going to look like. Today... The church, the Gentiles, are where the vast majority, perhaps, of, of what God has done in the last 2,000 years belongs. But here is a little glimpse that God had always had an intention to save people. It says in verse 5, the, the, the Ninevites believed God. Now, I don't necessarily think that they uh, become Yahwehists, that, that all of a sudden they stop the, and worshipping their false gods, but they believe this simple message. They believe this simple message that, that this one that, Nin, that, that, that Jonah represents actually has their 
doom in mind. And they believe the message. Jonah's not capable of bringing that about. That's not him. That's the power of the Lord. And a fast is proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. I think one of the things that we learn here is what repentance looks like. Because you remember when when Jonah's in the belly of the fish, he recognises that when he was thrown into the sea, he deserved to die. He also recognises that God sends the fish along and, and saves him and rescues him and he gives proclamation of praise to God for his salvation. And it's almost like he feels like he, he's been vindicated. But we never see real repentance from Jonah. We see mercy without repentance. Here we see repentance. We see what it is to, to actually recognize that standing before God they were guilty and that something had to be done and they threw themselves on the mercy of this God that, that, that Jonah was proclaiming in. In fact, in verse 6, we're told when, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and took off his royal robes and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. It says, By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. Do not let people or animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. What a decree from the king. This is actually what Israel needed. Israel needed a king to stand up and to call out to his people, to lead the way on what repentance looks like. And Jonah and Israel are shown up by a foreign king. And they throw themselves on the mercies of God. And, and th this is what it always looks like for salvation. What it always looks like for salvation is to recognize first and foremost that you stand in the hands of a God who can destroy you. You cannot wage war against this God. He is infinitely more powerful than any other nation or any other person, more powerful than Assyria and Nineveh, the most powerful nation of its day in the most powerful city of the land. To stand before God condemned is to stand in a place of immense danger and great travesty and tragedy for your soul. And yet, we learn that God is willing and he is able to show mercy to those who will throw themselves on his grace. And he does not use words needlessly. The very fact that the church has been told, has been given this command to go out 
into all of the world and to make disciples shows that God is gracious to sinners. He is gracious to sinners all throughout the world. He has been gracious to you. He has been gracious to me. He is still beckoning to this day. Come, throw yourself on my mercy. Repent of your sin. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, we should have the exact same reason for confidence that Jonah should have had. That God will ultimately use this foolish thing called preaching to save sinners. Now, there are different people in this world. There are, there are people who are really caught up with signs and wonders and miracles. There are people who are persuaded by great wisdom. They want all the answers. They want to they see the empirical evidence. But God has chosen to use neither of those two things, according to Paul. He's chosen to use the foolishness of the gospel. Because ultimately, it's God who gets the glory. Neither Jonah, the deliverer of the message... Or Nineveh, those who believe the message, get any glory here. All they did was humble themselves. And that's what it actually is, to come and throw yourself on the mercy of God. It's to humble yourself. It's to realize that you can't ultimately do anything to save yourself, to make yourself right before God. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. God looks down upon you. He knows that. He, he sees your mind. He sees your thoughts. He sees the motivations of your heart. There is no hiding from God. And yet, he gives time. He gives warning. He gives the gospel. And he sends one like Jonah. We should have a look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Jesus picks up on this thought and ultimately points to Jonah to point to his own ministry. In Matthew 12, 38, the, the Pharisees have come to Jesus after Jesus doing all of these things, all of these works, all of these signs, all of these miracles. And they come to him and they say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus points to this ministry of Jonah, and he says that ultimately, Nineveh repents with far less than was given to the generation of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus says that that sign, the sign is that Jonah was going to be in the belly of the fish for three nights, three days, three nights. Did Nineveh get to see that? They never got to see the sign. 
This is why the city, this, this city of Nineveh will stand up in judgment against the generation of Jesus. Because they saw Jesus. It wasn't Jonah that they saw, they saw Jesus. They saw his works. They see, saw him opening the eyes of the blind and, and causing the lame to walk. They saw him forgiving sins. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And then they dared to come to Jesus and ask for a sign. Nineveh had five words from a reluctant prophet. And they repented. This is Jesus' point. That the generation that Jesus was standing before had so much more than Nineveh ever had and ever could have had. And they repented. I want to put it to you today that although we do not have Jesus Christ standing here, we have more than even the generation that Jesus was speaking to there. Jesus predicted that for three nights, for three days, for three nights, he would be in the belly of the earth. At this point, that hadn't happened. But Jesus now is the resurrected God who has demonstrated that everything that he ever said and everything that he ever promised would be true because of this sign. We have so much more than the Pharisees here. We have a church that's been established for 2,000 years in the worst possible circumstances. I don't know if you, if you know this, if you don't know if you know it really well, about the, how the church was founded. People have this idea that, that the church was founded in such a way as it was to, to, to overthrow powerful people. It was to, 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 to basically be like this mind-altering thing that would, that would enslave people. Couldn't be any further from the truth. The reality is that there were 120 people in the upper room when Jesus died, rose again, and ultimately was ascended. 120 people. The vast majority of them women. In fact, the initial eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. Now, to us, that might not seem like a big deal. But in Jesus' day, it was a big deal. Do, do you know that women were not actually able to give eyewitness testimony in a court? If you're going to make up a story, this is not the story you make up. What, the only reason why you would put in that women were the initial eyewitnesses to the greatest miracle that the world had ever seen was it was the only thing that you had that some women saw Jesus once dead and now alive. An empty grave with some folded clothes. The church sprung up, not because it had well-educated men, not because it had powerful people, but because they were poor and thrown on the mercies of God. 
The only thing that can be accounted for the success of the church is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Men, women within the church completely changed, going to their deaths, going to their torture, the loss of family, the loss of wealth, not the opposite. No immediate disciple of Jesus became powerful or wealthy because of their message. Every single one of them died a hideous death, ostracized, poor, rejected. That's what the church was founded on. Ultimately founded upon the works of Jesus Christ. We should be thankful that it wasn't Jonah that was sent to us, but Jesus. Because Jonah found himself in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights because God rescued him. Jesus found himself in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights because he was rescuing us. Nineveh gets Jonah. We get Jesus. But the message is very similar. Paul says in Acts 17.31, it says, he says, for he, speaking of God, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man that he has appointed. He will have set a day where he will judge the world by justice. If you've got to stand before a judge ultimately, who is an eyewitness to every act, every crime, what hope do you have to be acquitted? That's the reality about standing before God that one day. This man, Jesus Christ, is the man that he is appointed to judge. And he will judge with justice. And all of us have to admit that if God watched us for the course of our life, and that he's going to give justice that we can't stand before him. And Jesus' resurrection is the proof of this. He says that he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Here's the reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence that he is going to return as judge, that he is going to return with justice, that he is going to be the one who will judge justly, and that nobody, if they are left to their own works, will be able to stand before him. But the other thing is that it's proof that because he has been raised, because he has been raised from the dead, it's proof that he can give the mercy that is needed. Ultimately, that's what the Lordship of Christ gives us. I think this final verse in Jonah is so important to us as well. In verse 10, when God sees the repentance of Nineveh, it says, when God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the disaster that he had threatened. If you were given another day, like Nineveh is given another day, God is being merciful to you. 
because he has set a day. He has set a day where he will judge with justice. But if he's given you today, if he hasn't appeared, he's given you today as a mercy. And it should not be wasted. Your only hope is to throw yourself upon the mercy that is offered in Jesus Christ. In the very fact that he has actually done all that is necessary to pay for your every sin. He has done enough. You do not have to stand in the justice of God. You can stand in the mercy and the grace of God. He is a God of grace and mercy. He is a God who remembers your sins no more if it's in Jesus. This was always Jonah's fear. In Jonah 4.2, he said, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew that. For Jonah, it's an accusation. For me, it's a beckoning. God is not needlessly angry. He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's abounding in love. He's a God who relents from sending calamity. And so for us, there are two things. There are, number one, I've been beckoning with people here who don't necessarily know Jesus, don't have him as saviour, to not delay. Don't delay any longer. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God. Believe, trust that in his life and his death and his resurrection, there is enough to cover all the sins for all those who will believe. That's the promise of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so if that's you, if, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, know that there's enough mercy for you. You are not too far from God. You have not done too much. There is mercy for you. By faith in Jesus Christ. For the church, the message is a simple obedience. Don't get distracted by good things. We have a command, we have a commission. We have the power of the Almighty God. The task is not too hard for Him. Our job is not the results, our job is the obedience. We must trust Him with the results, as those who must trust him, must trust for salvation. Why don't we pray? Lord God, I thank you so much for your mercy and your grace that's offered through Jesus. I want to pray for each person here who does not know you, who isn't clinging to Jesus, who isn't trusting in him alone for salvation. I pray, Lord, that, that you would do a work, that you would do the same work that you did in Nineveh. That you would remember mercy. 
while there is today. Lord, I pray for your church. I pray that we would be obedient, that there would be a simple obedience to the primary task that you have given us. And Lord, that you would grant us power. We can't do this alone. We can't do this without you. We are not responsible for the results. We must throw ourselves upon you in trust. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.